Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Today, we're joined by novelist Emily Johnson. Emily will be reading to us from and talking about her book, Pushing Through the Cracks. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Anytime. So can you please tell us a bit about Pushing Through the Cracks? So this was my first book, and it came about really by accident. What started as a journal that I was keeping for myself, really, just somewhere to record my thoughts, I decided probably about a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago now, that I think it was actually May 2021, so about a year and a half ago, I had a snapping point in my life. And I had been looking after two sons, uh, one of whom was 16, the other one was 18. Both of them had been suffering with uh, different types of mental illness. And I was estranged from my husband who was had fallen into alcoholism. So I had three family members, essentially, that were really struggling. And behind the scenes, I was really struggling, but I wasn't acknowledging that at the time. Mm. So I used my writing as a way to escape from my life a way to put my thoughts down somewhere. And then in May of 2021, I reached my snapping point where Mm. I knew that I couldn't go on doing what I was doing, basically enabling my family members in their mental illness, trying to to rescue them. So for me, writing the book was my way of turning what was a horrendous experience into something that would give other parents potentially hope in similar situations where they were dealing with adolescents who were struggling with mental illness. Sadly, there are many globally, um, but for me personally at the time, I felt very isolated in this experience and very alone. And so I knew that that when I had that snapping point that I had to do something with, with this story, with our family's journey, and I had to make it count. And so that became my mission was to put my entries from a journal, my thoughts into a book. And the other side of that was it kept me above water, having that goal, which I set. And the goal was to publish it by World Mental Health Day 2021, which was the 10th of October. So I spent the next six months pulling together the story, working with an editor, polishing it. And I didn't quite make it to publication on World Mental Health Day because I got a nasty virus that kind of took me off my feet for two weeks. But um, having that goal was what kept my head above water, to be honest. What a generous goal. And before we ask for the reading, I know you mentioned that there's a trigger warning, warning. And if you wanted to read that. Sure. So this publication contains reference to subjects that some readers may find distressing, including self-harm, suicidal thoughts, alcoholism, gambling, anxiety, depression, OCD and eating disorders. Reader discretion is advised. And could we ask for your first reading, please? Of course. This chapter is the beginning of my book. And this is really the the day that I had my, my breaking point. I just couldn't take it anymore. Dandelion, May 2021. No, 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 I cannot take any more of this, I roared. Anger, frustration and desperation bubble up in my chest, overwhelming me, threatening to suffocate me. I am finally broken. It has taken me four excruciatingly difficult years of propping up three other human beings to reach my snapping point. 
My husband Paul relapsed yesterday, spiralling back into self-harm with drink, prescription pills and a razor blade from a place of isolation and deep depression. My son Jack's obsessive compulsive disorder has gone into overdrive over me touching raw meat and it has had the audacity to forbid me from entering my own room, suggesting I sleep on the kitchen floor to prevent the outbreak of deadly food poisoning. An imaginary risk, of course, but OCD is a cunning parasite squatting in my son's mind and it is very convincing. I grab my keys from the little hook on the hallway and run outside to the sanctuary of the communal lane, slamming the door behind me with enough gusto to rattle the entire block of flats. Bursting into hot, angry tears, I run, sobbing as far up the lane as my legs will carry me, oblivious to whomever may be watching, and way past caring. At the back of our communal lane is a strip of no man's land that the neighbouring flats sit adjacent to. The back of a large building sits on the other side, so no one overlooks it making it the perfect dumping ground for discarded mattresses or fridges left there to disintegrate. It is also the perfect place for me to collapse on the ground, to sob unseen, defeated and broken. Mental illness is invisible in many ways, especially to the outside world. People outside immediate family and friends can't see it, especially if, like me, you hide it. Yet it is the biggest and ugliest of unseen beasts at times, and that has permeated our home, filling every inch of our place with its heavy, sombre presence. None of us invited it in, but it didn't care to wait for an invitation. It has shamed me into hiding away, covering its tracks and making excuses for it, carefully treading on thousands of eggshells around it each day. I hate it, resent it, in fact, and I despise what it has done to my whole family. But for now, the beast I am running from cannot find me here. I'm safe from its relentless taunting. It is the end of May 2021, a warm sunny Sunday afternoon and the first holiday weekend since the third lockdown has eased. People have flocked to the seaside for their staycations. I can hear life all around me, people laughing in nearby flats, cooking barbecues in the warm sunshine, traffic bustling past and the faint hum of jet skis at the beach nearby. I despise their normality. The last thing I want to hear right now is people enjoying their lives while mine lies shattered in pieces. I pick up my phone and call a crisis support line, twice, but it rings out both times. I desperately want someone to listen to me, to ease my pain, to hear my stories of Jack taking a knife to his throat during lockdown and of his overwhelming OCD compulsions that are consuming both of our lives around the clock. To listen to my tales of Paul's self-harm, his depression and alcohol relapse, and of Thomas's gambling and depression, I long for someone to verbally soothe me. What I really want, though, is a stranger on the phone to tell me it's okay to run away, even just for one night, something I seem unable to permit myself to do. But nobody's on the end of the phone. No one's listening. Their absence sparks a flicker of fire in my belly. In all honesty, I've finally gone beyond the point of asking for anything. Why the hell do I need to ask anyone's permission to start living? This is my life, and it's about time I claimed it back. I search my phone frantically for a local hotel room to escape to, but I can only find one room in the entire town. Everywhere is completely sold out, apart from one extortionate penthouse suite, and there is no way my budget can stretch that far. Finally, after 12 long months, I've actually summoned the gumption to escape, and there is not a single place left to run away to. I throw my phone across the path in frustration and pick up a small stone, scraping at the concrete, angrily scratching crisscross patterns across it. 
something catches my eye. A beautiful yellow dandelion is growing through a crack in the concrete. Its golden yellow petals cut through the greyness of the broken path, and it overshadows the filth and discarded cigarette butts around it. It may be just a weed, but I see it in all its beauty. In this moment, it is the most beautiful living thing I have ever seen. Despite its surroundings, it has found its way to push up through that crack, to have life. It is not complaining or giving up, it's surviving, and it will go on to finish flowering. And one day soon, the wind will carry its dainty seeds somewhere else to carry on the cycle of its life. Just like that dandelion, I have pushed through adversity and survived. The only difference is I have fought it the whole way, kicking and screaming and complaining constantly, trying to control outcomes when all that was needed was to grow with life, not fight against it. I close my eyes and raise my face to the sunshine, bathing in its gentle warmth. I find myself smiling. Even in the midst of all this chaos, this darkness, there is warmth and light. There is hope. Oh, Emily. What a powerful, it's a powerful story. And also I think the decision to write it and share it seems like such, while also really vulnerable, but also such a generous thing to do for other readers. And especially, said, like you said, people who might be experiencing similar challenges. So can I ask, what was that experience of writing the book like while you were living it? It was both painful and healing at once um, because it, it had been the culmination of a three to four year journey, a very difficult journey that had um, touched, you know, I've touched on those subjects in the trigger warning, but I had two children who were struggling with one with severe OCD, uh, another one with a teenage gambling addiction. It was a blended family. My, it was my second husband. He was spiraling into alcoholism and self-harm my world was chaotic and so I had been writing all of this down pre-COVID in a journal and so when I I I was still in the midst of it when I was writing Mm. this book but I found it very healing to a certain degree and very painful to recount some of those experiences but I could also see that we had gone through this huge journey and there had been glimmers of hope through that journey but one tends to remember the darker things rather than holding on to um, the pockets of light and the pockets of joy that were interspersed between that journey. So it, it was essential for me. It was healing for me. It was an escape for me. And having a goal on the horizon of writing this and publishing this really did give me a way out. It gave me hope. I love that idea of writing as a way to remember the good things and as a way to keep hope. And like you said, often we for, we forget those good things and the good moments and kind of focus on because we maybe see so many more of them, of the, the other sides that are not as positive. So I love that idea of journaling as a way to remember. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah. Buffering the mayhem. Over the course of 20-something years, I have mastered the art of emotional laboring. The ability to smile outwardly through gritted teeth, disguising my own emotions whilst appeasing those around me. My mother inadvertently taught me that skill. However, there have been times I couldn't force that fake smile no matter how hard I tried. 
I was angry at my life had been ripped apart by mental illness and addiction. I couldn't go out anywhere or make any plans and I became a full-time round-the-clock carer to three debilitated people. It wasn't a role I'd chosen or wanted. I selfishly resented my younger son at times for being sick. I punished him like it was a choice he was making, unable to see his illness for what it was or to witness his pain and frustration because my own anger blinkered me to it. Likewise, I wanted Thomas to pull himself out of his depression. He knew better than anyone what I was dealing with each day with Jack, so somehow I expected him to sort himself out without any help. I needed him to stop gambling, to stop hiding away from life in his room and causing me additional stress. I was angry with Paul too. His alcoholism threw a ticking time bomb into our lives that eventually exploded. The inevitable debris left only remnants of our old marriage for me to hold on to, to try and salvage. The strong man I needed beside me more than ever had gone. When things deteriorated with Jack, when he was needed the most, Paul became like another child, another responsibility to constantly worry about, leaving me flooded with resentment towards him. At the time, I thought we all just needed to man up. What an awful, demeaning expression that is, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I shouted at them all at times from a place of ignorance and desperation. I became accustomed to buffering everyone's mayhem. I couldn't tell Paul about Thomas's gambling, nor of Jack's lack of progress, or tell my sons of Paul's drinking and self-harm, for that matter. And in the process, I juggled everyone's extreme imbalance with the well-meant intention of protecting them from each other. I was essentially lying to them all, most of the time. Most days, it was a job to remember whose truth I was dealing with at any given time. Everyone's instability had to be absorbed somewhere, and I was the perfect sponge, sucking it all up in silence, creating a personal whirlpool of seething chaos. From time to time, rather like a pressure cooker, the steam had to release to prevent an explosion. Sometimes, though, letting off a little steam came too late and I blew. My skin would crawl and itch from the inside at times with sheer frustration. Gritting my teeth, I'd quietly walk away from my son's to the sanctity of a tiny kitchen in my flat and grip the work surfaces tightly. I'd dig my fingernails into my palms, desperately wanting to scream and shout every known profanity you could imagine. Most of the time, I didn't. I'd slam kitchen pans around with gusto and grab pencils from a pot on the windowsill and snap them. What I really wanted to do was snap their bloody necks at times. But what kind of mother would even think such thoughts? Me. I am a mum. A loving, kind one. But I'm not unshakable. I'm still just a person with limits and I'm honest enough to admit they all tested me regularly well beyond them. I began to question my moral compass at times, having such dark thoughts. I'm almost ashamed to voice them but recognise now it was just a symptom of desperation and frustration. Anger and frustration are part of our emotional makeup and should not be stifled. They are more likely to explode with devastating effects on the poor, unsuspecting people around you when held in. My family and I would have been much better served if I'd grabbed my keys, left the flat and gone to sit in my car. I could have shouted out that anger alone without affecting anyone or directing at them in personal attacks. I'm not going to lie. I love my husband and children fiercely and would defend them to the end of time but there were several times when I couldn't stand to be around any of them. There was no respite from their struggles and I'd spend my time running from one person's crisis to the next. I was like a ragdoll, with each one of them tugging at one of my limbs, pulling me in every direction. It was exhausting. 
Each of them didn't fully know or understand the extent of the other's dysfunction. How could they? I'd hidden it so well. So how could they possibly know what I carried solely on my shoulders? There were many occasions I'd walk out to the flat enraged with nothing more than the coat on my back and the change in my pocket. I'd every intention of disappearing and never coming back. But I couldn't bring myself to do it. Something stopped me every time. None of this is easy to admit. After all, I was the perfect earth mother. Butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, Emily. Some days I loathed the sight of my own family because of their mental illness. But I never stopped loving them. Ever. Oh, wow. Emily, what is something that you've learned about yourself, about hope, about family, addiction, anything, but something that you've learned or discovered through the writing of Pushing Through the Cracks? I have learned so many things. First of all, there's no such thing as the perfect family. And for as long as I held on to that ideal, I struggled because we are fed through social media, media, this ideal of the perfect family. And that's really a false image, I think, for many families, because the reality is, you know, my my children, my husband, myself, we are just a small proportion of people who are affected by various degrees of mental illness in this day and age. And yeah, as much as we're speaking about it, there is still stigma attached to certain aspects of of mental illness. And yes, we're you know we are speaking about it wildly now and very openly and honestly. But there was still so much shame attached to my whole situation. So much so that you know, I didn't talk to my family. My family didn't even know what was going on outside of my um, my own household, my immediate family, my mother, my brother. And my extended family, uncles, and I, nobody knew anything about this. And in fact, they didn't know until they got the book and read it. That's how much I, I hid away from, from everyone. So l- learning to accept mental illness, learning to um, accept that it is no different to physical illness. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The only difference is that it, it doesn't have adequate treatment available, certainly not in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, that the services are completely overstretched. And there was no point in hiding away and, and feeling ashamed of this situation. I, I learned that very strongly. I also learned that I can't fix people. Mm-hmm. I can't protect people I love from experiencing difficult and challenging situations in life. That it was never my job to fix them. It was my job to love them and support them and let them face the situation themselves with my support, but not with me trying to fix everything because... I can't do that. And it's not my role to do that. My role is to be a mum and to be a wife and to love the people in my life, but let them experience life. What wonderful lessons to learn. And I'm really glad that you decided to write the book and to publish it. And I hope that it led the way to other conversations with people that hadn't known what your family was struggling with and that they were able to, you know, help and embrace you all. So I'm really glad that you took that journey and sharing it with us. Can I ask for one final reading, please? Of course. Yeah. Thank you. This one is called Owning the Night, and it describes a segment where my son and I used to go walking through lockdown, 
and we often go at three or four o'clock in the morning when he'd finished his other OCD compulsions. But it was one of those pockets of joy that I talked about at the beginning of our chat that may not seem joyful to many other people because he wants to be walking around the streets at three or four o'clock in the morning without any sleep. But to us, they were very special. And so I wanted to, to read this one to you. Owning the Night, July 2020. As much as the pandemic interrupted our lives and slowed access to the mental health services we so desperately needed, it gifted Jack a sense of safety which allowed him to walk unnoticed while the rest of the world remained locked away. Walking became a daily occurrence partly because Jack enjoyed it, but mostly because his OCD dictated that he had to do it. Often Jack and I would walk at night once his other compulsions were complete. Unfortunately, if Jack's catalogue of compulsions were delayed through his OCD demands, we'd end up walking at 2, 3 and even 4 a.m. In fact, during the series of COVID lockdowns, we walked our way around the entire clock. During the early days, Jack was very uncomfortable passing other people in the street. But as the days passed and his confidence grew, he became more comfortable with our nighttime ventures. We always followed the same route dictated by his OCD. The only time we deviated was when he felt spooked by an exuberant drunk person noisily heading in our direction. Suddenly, Jack would dart in a different direction and run to catch up with him. We certainly met some characters during our night walks. One evening, we walked past a man sitting on the curb near us. It was 3am and we had no choice but to pass him. He was obliterated on drink, a bottle of spirit still clasped in his hands. He was rocking and muttering incoherently as we passed him. And by the time we walked four or five metres beyond him, he was lying on his back on the side of the road, singing loudly while cycling his legs in the air. Then there was the one-legged wheelchair-bound homeless man who appeared from nowhere around a corner wheeling up to us just after 4am asking for change. He caught me off guard and I hurriedly muttered that I had nothing before scurrying up the hill as fast as I could. Jack was wary of the drug addicts and homeless people, but I was rarely so, though their appearance from the shadows like that spooked even me. The town centre was colourful at the best of times, but there was something about that window between 12am and 4am that was exciting and a little terrifying. It never really seemed to sleep. There were always sounds or movements in the shadows. We would laugh once we were home, in the safety of the flat, but there were a few occasions when people's behaviour really frightened us. We heard countless drug deals taking places and we passed shady characters on street corners. We laughed at the number of men we caught sneaking into the local brothel, embarrassed to be seen sharing the same path as us, one in, one out sometimes. There was a whole new world out there, an often dark and seedy one, but it was always interesting and exciting to Jack. His only experience for several years had been watching life online from inside his room. There was also something quite magical and exhilarating walking the streets in the middle of the night. Jack always said he felt like he owned the night, especially if we passed no one. It was eerily apocalyptic during lockdown, but in a terrifyingly beautiful way. Our experience changed depending on the time we ventured out. It almost became a game of sorts, and we'd guess who lived behind the windows we saw lit up at night. We knew every inch of the roads we walked, every house, every flat, shop and rubbish bin. We'd peek into the lives of people who were still up at 4am the ones who sat on the computers by the windows, the invisible tenant who we never saw, but who must have kept their poor neighbours up night after night with the TV blaring until the small hours, the man who slept on his sofa in the basement flat night after night, curtains open, the street sweepers in their little carts and the night cleaners who cleaned the betting shop and local pubs. 
We'd watch the supermarket night staff restock the shelves long after the town had emptied. We observed the local kebab shop mopping up and closing at 3am and giggled at the seagulls swooping in to shred their rubbish bags searching for scattered chips. They would annihilate a black bin bag in minutes and by the time we looped back around the road would be littered with rubbish. One night we disturbed some rats by commercial bins in an alleyway. They scattered everywhere with such speed I squealed. We laughed afterwards and the spot the rats soon became part of our nightly game. For all that darkness... For all the dirt and the squalid things we saw, there was beauty too. Sometimes we would stop and look up at the stars together. Jack would marvel at them. The simplest things would enthrall him. Because Jack had been locked inside his own mind and room for three years, he would look at all things with childlike wonder, and it was infectious. He would often stop mid-conversation to look up at the wispy clouds moving across the black sky or the moon when it was full. One night... We headed out at 3.30am. It was stormy outside, but that didn't stop us. OCD doesn't pause for inclement weather. Jack was giggling like a little child at the wind and rain hitting his face, and he suddenly sprinted up the road. When I caught up, he was laughing infectiously. I feel free, Mum, he cried, life dancing in his eyes. Jack and I continued to walk every day. The walks became a highlight during a truly dreadful time and broke the monotony of the OCD rituals. Paul never knew about these walks. I didn't dare tell him. It was difficult enough dealing with Thomas's protective reaction. He was terrified that something would happen to me whilst walking the streets at such strange times with Jack. I half expected to bump into Paul at one of the late night off licences during our walks, but thankfully we never did. It meant I didn't have to justify the ludicrous dictatorship of Jack's OCD to Paul, nor explain to Jack the extent of Paul's drinking. Jack and I often reminisce about those middle-of-the-night walks. They belonged just to us, our secret adventures, and as disruptive and exhausting as they were to me, there was a tiny part of me that mourned them when the lockdowns ended. Jack taught me to pause and witness the beauty around me. I'd been too disconnected from life outside of our mental mayhem to notice it. Oh, how lovely. Where can we buy Pushing Through the Cracks? So at the moment, Pushing Through the Cracks is available on Amazon for sale. It's available in ebook and paperback, and it's available across about 15 countries in the world. So it's widely available. Oh, that's wonderful. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today, for reading to us and talking to us about the book. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.